Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother Jeff. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, good. I'm just trying to get this time machine back up and running that we used for the 50th uh, anniversary shows. I can't seem to get it going here, but otherwise, I'm doing fine. I'm just trying to go on a grand and miraculous journey today. And oh, fantastic. I suggest reversing the polarity. That always seems to it work. It does always work, doesn't it? Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's the unplug and plug. Yeah, plug it back in. Solution for time machines. Yeah, um, we're going to be doing a lot of time traveling in general in these coming episodes, but especially today. It's very true, and you know when you think about the uh, the arc of history, Michael. What is the tie that binds us? It's uh, what we're doing right now. We're communicating with each other. We're talking to each other over uh, all kinds of ones and zeros. It's really incredible, isn't it? It is. It's uh, electronic babble made real. A flood of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of all kinds of, you know, all kinds of layers of history in this information age. And we're going to talk a little bit today about that, about the communications uh, and how it relates to Epcot Center. We're going to talk about Epcot, Michael. I know. I'm excited. It is the 40th anniversary, 4-0, believe it or not, of Epcot Center. And so we're kicking off a whole run of shows about different topics inspired by Epcot. And, of course, the first thing you see when you come in the gates, Spaceship Earth, the story of communication... So what better way to start, really, than talking about communication? And there's, you know, uh, there's a theme running through Disney history, definitely there. It's true. And in this pavilion, Spaceship Earth, uh, Disney partnered with uh, Bell Labs and later their subsidiary, AT&T. We're going to talk a little bit today about that partnership and even further back, you know, the bells go back to the very beginnings of World's Fairs, which is tied in with Epcot. So we're going to examine all of those things uh, and how they relate to Epcot. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about how Spaceship Earth itself evolved from a sort of nebulous theme show representing all of Epcot Center to the geosphere that we know and love. And we're going to talk to somebody who helped make that happen. We're going to have another part of our interview with Peggy Ferris. So, uh, you know, about her work on Spaceship Earth. So uh, it's a lot to, to talk about. That's right. Uh, it's time to take a journey back, I think, Michael. Yeah. Before we do, though, I have, you know, I love our listeners. I love the love, love the listeners. Don't we all? And after our last episode, I got a message from a listener with a very interesting addendum, which I thought I would include here to our last episode about our 50th episode and Disney 50th anniversaries. And you will remember in that episode, we talk about Dean Jones telling an odd little version of a story about Walt taking his daughters to an amusement park on La Cienica Boulevard. Yes. And riding the carousel, and that being the inspiration for Disneyland. 
Now, and that seemed odd to us at the time because I'd never heard that before. Well, uh, a, a, a friendly listener sent me a message, said, uh, included an article from KCET, which is a public media out there in Los Angeles, well-respected, about a theme park on the corner of Beverly Boulevard and La Cienica, now the home of the Beverly Center Mall, blah, that operated from 1945 to 1974 called Beverly Park. Hmm. And it turns out that this uh, little acre, less than an acre park, was the fruit of a guy named David Bradley, who was a entrepreneur, in self-taught guy, an engineer guy, and uh, he he had his own suitcase and a dream, and he bought this newly opened in 1945. It had just really was pretty brand new. Uh, bought this little amusement park and turned it into a thing, and. Indeed, Walt Disney would bring his daughters there, and Walt got to know this guy, and apparently this guy was an early consultant on the making of Disneyland, like leading up to the Disneyland, because he shared a lot of the same ideals about keeping things clean and treating your people well and treating uh, guests well, and so he was kind of a pal of Walt's, so... Dean knew what he was talking about after all. I have never heard that, and I am I am amazed. I just wondered when I heard it, what if it was true? Because it seems so specific. And uh Right. I had never heard it either. And you know, of course, the story always is that it was the out in the uh, park right, there. Right. That the at Griffith Park, the carousel there, which right. is where this happened, and that was the story Walt would tell. But apparently, as a side trip, they would also go to Beverly Park. So, a fun little historical thing. I, I, I think people should look it up because the story is pretty interesting, and lots of Hollywood people would go there. Say Errol Flynn would take his kids there because it was a nice place to pick up women. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. it was some fun for everybody, really, at Beverly Park. Well, there you go. Very interesting. Yeah. So thanks thanks for sending that in. That, that was really interesting. A whole little segment of history that I was completely unaware of. But now that we've got that taken care of, we can get in. buckle into our time machine vehicles. Get in. <laughs> get in. To our time machine vehicles, the strobe lights are ablazing on the wall. Let's take a trip back, back, back. Maybe not 40,000 years, but somewhere in that vicinity. And uh, see where it all started. It's Epcot time.
It's fitting that our story of communications would start in a world's fair, as Epcot draws so much from the tradition of the great world's fairs. The first world's fair to be held in the United States was at the Centennial Exposition in 1876 in Philadelphia, a legendary event later memorialized in Epcot. But one of the big hits of the fair, aside from the steam-powered monorail that was on display, was Alexander Graham Bell's early telephone prototype. Michael, don't forget me telephone. Uh, don't forget that tele telephone. Uh, he showed it off to various dignitaries and investors and received enough interest to found the American Bell Telephone Company after the fair, based on a U.S. patent from March 1876. From that moment on, the Bell System, as it would come to be called, and AT&T, its eventual parent company, would be at the vanguard of technology with a front seat to American life and, of course, all kinds of world's fairs. In 1893, as the initial patent for the telephone was about to expire and the company was on the verge of having a lot of competition for the first time, the company had a huge presence in Chicago at its legendary World's Fair. Though according to some accounts that exhibits such as the Speech Scrambler, designed to encode calls, pack them in, John Mills, who saw the exhibit as a child, said there was nothing to attract me to it. <laughs> Really didn't do anything for me, personally. Not loving it. I don't like having my speech scrambled. By 1939, Mills was an executive for AT&T and in charge of the company's efforts at the World of Tomorrow New York World's Fair. And AT&T would have one of the real centerpiece attractions at the fair. Most guests who visited had their hearing checked, which led to the largest study of human hearing by far at that point. What fun! Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go to the fair and get my hearing checked. Ah, I found out so much. Uh, but that wasn't all. You could make live long-distance phone calls. And through a technology called Voice Mirror, you could have your voice recorded and played back to you, which sounds a bit mundane now, but back then it must have really been something. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be really, yeah, really something else then. This voice recording tech was also used in a rather creepier application in, attraction, in an attraction called Voice of the Visitor. According to David Pope, World's Fair historian, quote, five specifically selected guests assumed seats on a stage set of a landscaped garden. The interlocutor then interviewed the individuals for a few minutes. Sports, vacation plans, styles and women's hats, and pet peeves proved to be the most popular topics of discussion. The guests then took seats at the foot of the garden. Within minutes, five mannequins situated in their previous seats repeated the initial interview in the visitor's original voices. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> voice of the visitor. You will never forget voice of the visitor. Please do not reveal That's... the shocking finale of voice of the visitor. That's just creepy, Michael. That... <laughs> the, the, the robot had my pet peeves and told them back to me. <laughs> I, I'd creepy. Would, I'd got to look up pictures of these mannequins. Cause I bet they were really terrifying. Oh, I bet they were. I bet they were. Um, yeah, not, yeah, I don't know. It's Epcot pole, the early years. <laughs> That's right. But by far and away, the most popular attraction of the pavilion, well, maybe that was a hearing test, but the most remarkable 
was the Voder, a very early voice synthesizer prototype developed by Bell Labs, short for Voice Operating Demonstrator. This was related to the vocoder technology that was being developed to reduce bandwidth on phone lines and provide encryption, with research going back as early as 1928. I cannot believe this technology was this old. Yeah. Essentially reproducing human speech through electronic instruments. I mean, crazy. Yeah, that is really, really surprising. And uh, it sounds like, again, another communicore exhibit just... Right or, or like Smart One was basically to display voice synthesizing mm-hmm. technology. So that is really nuts. Um, this Pedro, uh, Pedro the Voter was his name, supposedly named after the Emperor of Brazil who heard Bell's telephone at the 1876 exhibition, was operated by a group of voterettes or female operators who would control the machine and do the whim of a host and a bunch of crazed people determined on torturing these poor voterettes. I mean, uh, the yeah. Over the demonstration, the voter would recreate difficult phrases picked by the hosting crowd, do male and female voices with a pedal that could change the pitch for different voices and inflections, and they could even have it do different accents. I mean, it had three keyboards and a wrist control and the pedal. It was quite the operation. I gotta I hear mean, this. This... Well, and you shall, my friend. Two voters even had a chat when the voter from New York called San Francisco long distance to their concurrent fare and had quite the polite chat. Uh, let's actually hear a little bit of how this voter sound did. Now let's have Mr. Garrett and Miss Harper actually show us what the voter can do with these 20 separate sounds. Well, we've heard the voter make a word. And by combining words, of course, we get a sentence. For example, Helen, will you have the voters say, She saw me. She saw me. That sounded awfully flat. How about a little expression? Say the sentence in answer to these questions. Who saw you? She saw me. Whom did she see? She saw me. Well, did she see you or hear you? She saw me. Now, so far, you have only heard the voter speak in one voice. But the voter has other voices which he can use when Miss Harper makes a simple adjustment in his mechanism. Helen, will you have the voter say, Greetings, everybody? Greetings, everybody. Now, will you have him repeat that in a high voice? Greetings, everybody. And now, in his best face. Greetings, everybody. Suppose you sing a song for us, will you? Yes, certainly. Well, how about Auld Lang Syne? Auld Lang Syne? Okay. She called a lantern, for cock and necklaces. She called a lantern, for cock and necklaces. I mean, how... I am did these ladies do floored, <laughs> and I picture a lady in like a Roxy Usher usherette outfit, yes. like doing this. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, just being tortured by hey, I'm on a song, <laughs> applesauce. Um, yeah, I didn't tell you that it sounded just like a speaking spell, but it does <laughs> totally. 
And uh, obviously, a young Peter Frampton at the fair's life was changed forever. (laughs) That is really bananas. And again, the through line from this to like the tech they were showing at Communicore at Epcot's early days is oh, yeah, it's a very visible through line, it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. I wonder if Walt Walt hit both hit, hit up both of those fairs. I wonder if he saw the voter it was like, yeah, I'll have- I wonder if he did. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you just realize how much uh, you know. You think about that time that we lived through uh, the early '80s into you know the information age, uh, but you know all of this time was just quantum leaps in uh, communications technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, the age of information. It goes back further than I I realized or thought about. Um, we're looking into this stuff. I mean, the voice synthesis into the twenties is. I mean, who would think of that exactly as a thing to do? Exactly, that's and just what like, blows my. What mind. were you planning to do with it at the time? But right, yeah, it's really amazing. Well, as you mentioned, Walt had been to some world's fairs, and Disney had some world's fairing of their own to do. Their first major standalone attraction was at the Brussels World's Fair in 1958. This, in fact, was the first attraction built outside of Disney Park and would use these then-called Sarkarama technology <laughs> that debuted in Disneyland in 1955 with the American Motor Company-sponsored film A Tour of the West, which was hastily done by mounting cameras on the top of a station wagon and heading out of Hollywood. Sarkarama, <laughs> not the best name at the time. They worked on it. Get it? Get it? Right. This time, funding by the Ford Foundation and at the encouragement of the U.S. government, Disney set their sights a little higher and came back with America the Beautiful, a great piece that debuted in 1958 at Brussels and was a big hit at the fair to the point where the government toured the film after the fair. One of the stops would be in 1959 at the American National Exhibition in Russia, where the movie was shown in a space designed by architect Welton Beckett, so an early Disney-Beckett partnership there. This exhibition was a cultural exchange kind of bizarre showing that led to the kitchen debates of uh, Nixon and Khrushchev, which is just totally bizarre. Wow. This kitchen's better. Better. (laughs) by 1960, Disney and the Bell System would combine their forces with their World's Fair efforts when Ma Bell signed on to sponsor America the Beautiful and its new home in Tomorrowland at Disneyland USA. America the Beautiful would replace the AMC-sponsored Tour of the West in Tomorrowland and also bring some World's Fair-style attractions in pre- and post-show form. From the beginning, guests could do fun stuff with phones at America the Beautiful and these displays would change over the course of the Bell Systems' partnership with Disney. We'll go into those in a bit, but first, let's check in with the 1962 World's Fair in Seattle. Hi, this is the Bell Systems' new touch-tone dialing. With this indicator, you see how many seconds you save the new way. Let's try it! Okay, I'll race you. Ready? Go! Welcome to our exhibit. 
I'm glad to have this opportunity to tell you about the telephone switching center of tomorrow. The electronic central office, which is made possible by the magic of the transistor and other tiny but amazing devices invented by the Bell Telephone Laboratory. Imagine, if you can, an electronic brain operating at millionth of a second speeds. I say brain because the new electronic central office will almost think for itself. It will not only carry out instructions you dial into it, it will also remember instructions you provided earlier. These memory features will offer many convenient services I'm sure you'll be delighted with. For one thing, you'll be able to reach frequently called numbers by dialing only two digits. All you'll have to do is give the telephone company a list of the numbers you dial most frequently. What a deal! <laughs> Easy as pie. Oh man, you beat me in my dialing. Oh man. Um, yeah, touchstone dialing. You got the long distance. Michael, you could call long distance. But it is crazy. I mean, they had like pagers there. Um, just to think about all the things that came along at this time that were kind of prototype systems that now seem outdated to us, but. Yeah, for really them, changed it was the way that the world works. Absolutely, worked. like call forwarding and things, and right. uh, that that whole short is very entertaining and was actually on an episode of Mystery Science Theater. Yes, it was. Yeah, it's really funny. They have a great little vignette of like Susie wants to go out, but now she can do call forwarding and <laughs> make sure she goes. You know, gets to go do what she wants to do. And her, like, date gets confused because somebody else answers, well, I'm looking for Susie. Well, she's at our house. (laughs) Oh, confusion. Technology. Well, as fun as that sounds, you can imagine things would get ramped up for the fair. In fact, we have a ballad of the fair. And before our white eyes saw tomorrow arise, fancied or real, a ballad in steel, splendid and strong, building a song of a world that is yet to come. Hammered and milled, welded and drilled, rivets and nails, timber and rails, a ballad to skill, to peace and goodwill, of a world that is on the way. High in the air, over the fair, watching the show, down there below, in splendor arrayed, the world's on parade. Seen from a holiday height From lands far away They walk on display East and the west The world at its best Each tempted to stare At his friends of the fair Trying to understand The exotic, the new Strolling in view Learning to understand Man, I have a new song to cover. We got the, uh, it's like the Stratton and Christopher. I was thinking that total Stratton and Christopher vibe. Also Gordo's gold. Oh yeah. Big time. Uh, They got a real, real, uh, yeah. Greenwich village vibe there. And then in the middle, I edited out, they have a real kind of Leonard Bernstein craziness. Very New York elite. Oh yeah. Long hairs. 
who knows if these long hairs will ever understand. But yes, the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. The bell exhibit at the fair was certainly one of the most distinctive from an architectural standpoint. It's this crazy giant flying wing resting on four pylons. An incredible effect of this massive fiberglass structure just appearing over the horizon. A really cool looking pavilion. Yeah. Inside, boy, we get more long distance. Uh, you also have more vocoder technology, and you could see your own speech represented on the wall in visual form. One of the highlights was the picture phone, where groups of people could get in a booth and talk on the ever-elusive picture phone to a group all the way across the country in Disneyland USA in the American The Beautiful Post Show. In fact, the very first transcontinental picture phone conversation was a press conference with the science consultant to the World's Fair and the editor of the Anaheim Bulletin. Huh. In addition, people could call and chat with Disney characters and play tic-tac-toe with a phone. That's very communicable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But the true highlight of the pavilion was an attraction described as from drumbeat to Telstar, the 1964 version of the fair, and even better, from Tom Tom to Telstar in the 1965 <laughs> version. Here's what the official World's Fair literature said. For the tour through communications history, the visitor in a moving chair with earphones is whisked through scenes showing the progress of man's efforts to communicate with others. Movies, stage sets, and projected pictures tell the story with three-dimensional effect, accompanied by music and narration. Hmm. But what are we listening to that guy for when we could listen to our friend, Songwriter X, tell us a little bit more about this attraction. In a place where electronic wonders abound, a marriage of sight to the drama of sound, a wonderful coupling of vision and speech, then a ride to the future and the past within reach. And now all are welcome on the Bell System ride. You know this ride you're taking never ends. At least the story it tells never ends. It's the story of man against time and distance. The never-ending human adventure of man's need to communicate. The story is a search for secrets buried deep in nature long before time. Secrets magical enough to make mountains, deserts, oceans vanish. But only a moment ago, as nature tells time, in the ancient wilderness, the sound of man was only man's size. Because you must, you invent a language that talks louder than your loudest shout. Words carved with a chisel, you have shrunk the world. You achieve the marvel of the written word. Words to be sent only as far and as fast as two feet can carry them. But handmade words take too long. So you make words by machine, pressed into paper, printed into books. Knowledge you can send anywhere, everywhere. And still another language. The language of plus and minus and equals. Numbers, mathematics, which can take the measure of the world. 
But you learn to read the language of nature's laws. You invent science, gravity, magnetism, light. And you teach electricity to speak. Speak Alexander Graham Bell's seven simple words. Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. From these seven words have grown the telephone nerve system of our nation. A living network which mirrors the ingenuity and enterprise of free men in a free society. Yes, you have the world at your fingertips. But you can't help reaching for tomorrow, up to Telstar and beyond. And this is only part of what you'll see at the Bell System Ride. So some similar, some noticeable themes there that carry over. I yeah, some plot points really uh, hitting hitting some familiar notes there. It's uh, Spaceship Earth is narrated by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it looks like it has a lot of projection in it. Uh, really beautiful. We're going to have to do show some of it on our live stream. Some great design on it. And the ride vehicles are cool. It's just like a conveyor belt of seats with headphones that are faced a la horizons. You know, you're moving perpendicular. Oh, okay, yeah. And everybody gets their own seats. They're pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, we should mention, too, that, you know, of all the Disney rides at 64, 65, you have the Magic Skyway that has its, you know, killing the mammoth scene together. And mm-hmm. the uh, not then the inventor of the wheel. So those are Epcot themes that carried over as well. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, in 1967, New Tomorrowland opened at Disneyland. And with it, AT&T stayed on as sponsor of America the Beautiful in a spiffed-up location. In fact, it seems they used a lot of gadgetry from the fair to spice up the pre- and post-show areas. Here was what was on the menu. Of course, you had the picture phones. Every half hour, you could speak to an audience from Expo 67 in Montreal or the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago or the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. So that's pretty cool. cool. You could phone for your latest local weather fun (laughs) kitty phones you could call the disney characters a portrait would light up on a map of disneyland as a message played you got the voice mirrors where you could hear and see the voices played back so they're still doing that it even had a theme song the talk song which i need to know more about i really want to hear this song and what it sounded like because that sounds like that sounds like a sherman brothers song Uh the talk song in fact, AT&T would go on to sponsor this attraction until around 1984, but the Bells and Disneys would be in cahoots even more at Expo 67. And I feel like Expo 67 is the true embryonic Epcot. Yeah, it gets overlooked, I think. But... I know, and it was very, very popular. I guess it's just the American in us that overlooks it. But uh, Alexander Graham Bell was no American. He was Canuck. So there was Bell presence in Canada. As well, in the Telephone Association of Canada Pavilion, Disney was once again commissioned to present a Circle Vision travelogue of a country, but this time it was Canada and the 22-minute spectacular Canada 67. I'd love to see that. I know. As described at the time, you're on center ice for hockey, on the track at the Stampede. Sound familiar? Hmm. Hmm. Visiting the Quebec Winter Carnival over Niagara Falls, this was the most popular film of Expo 67, 
and would definitely inform the Okanada film <laughs> at Epcot just a few years later. Interestingly, this film would be rarely played ever again, except in a brief occurrence at the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World during their salute to Canada, of course, in January 1974. By that time, Disney had its sights on Epcot and all kinds of plans, including luring Ma Bell. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Reach out, call up America. People from coast to coast, calling up friends to keep them close. Families who care so much, keeping in touch. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Reach out, call up and just say hi. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Wherever you are, you're never too far to call up and just say hi. Michael, I have enjoyed these Peggy Ferris interviews. If you all have not listened to the past couple of episodes, uh, you really should. Peggy had such a great experience. I mean, it's really just a breadth of Disney history that she covers in her interviews. It's like some really golden era stuff. Absolutely. It just... One place after the other, like one significant event after the other. And uh, as we said when we were talking about it during her episode, you know, she started so young, which meant she got to see all these different things as they were happening. It's really amazing. Yes. And one of the things she is known for is her work on Spaceship Earth. That's right. She was kind of the... One of the researchers who added in all this crazy level of detail. You know, when we were kids and would read in that giant Epcot Center book about how realistic everything was and how the hieroglyphics were authentic and this and that was authentic. And it was such a big deal for the park. It was such a selling point of how realistic all this stuff was. And Peggy was right in the middle of that. She really was. And that stuff is really what, you know, is called, and I call, the Disney difference. You know, when Disney is doing uh, their job well, they do a lot of research and uh, make things right. So it all kind of has a quintessence to it. Absolutely. Uh, Epcot was an early era of a, a whole new leap in this direction where they're really doing some serious academic research. And she was really at the forefront of that. Yeah, that's a good point. This was, you know, you think now with things like animal kingdom or something where that you see the photos where they send people around the world and getting local craftsmen to do things and taking a billion pictures of things. This was kind of the path to that, where they didn't really go around the world, but they consulted experts. They had these advisory panels of real expert people, and they did their research. And this was kind of the start of, just as you say, of that trend. Well, let's hear what Peggy had to say about her work on Spaceship Earth. 
you wound up working on Spaceship Earth. How did that happen? And uh, tell me just uh, about the research that went into that show. So I, you know, I arrived at WED in September of 1976 and went right to work with Pat working on the conferences and the advisory boards. And then a couple of years into this, now we're sort of shifting away from, we have our last conference in um, 78. And now we're really shifting our focus to building the pavilions. And I don't know, Marty Sklar asked if I would like to do the historical research on Spaceship Earth. And I had met Marty at the press conference back in 1969 when I was in college. And I was, and at the time I was an English major, but I was taking all the core English classes, Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, all of that. But I also took Celtic mythology, Indian lit, Indic mythology, art of the North American Indian, and geography of Southwest Asia. And I think this really tickled Marty because he wrote me a very funny note after the conference in 69 and said, there's a producer who wants to be do a film about Celtic mythology as soon as he finds out what it is. And he just, and I, I know from talking with his wife, Leah, that she she was kind of bemoaning the fact that their son Howard had had chosen to go study in Scandinavia. And she's like, why? And he said, well, mom, you told us nothing we ever learn is ever wasted. And she was thinking, oh, yeah, we did say that. (laughs) That was something we told you, kids. (laughs) You have to watch what you say because they can come back and get you. (laughs) So I think maybe, you know, I mean, Walt, I've heard, was very intuitive about giving people assignments. The fact that he that he asked Blaine Gibson to become the sculptor for Imagine for Wed. I mean, Blaine had not been a sculptor at the studio. That's not what he did. And But Walt knew that Blaine liked to sculpt things in his spare time. And so, you know, he created this, he developed this, magnificent sculpting studio and brought in and he sculpted you know i watched him pull together hall of presidents presidents and Mm -hmm. you know he had a wonderful team adolfo procopio and um oh i can't remember the other or another really talented peter peter something um and so i guess marty kind of following in that model just sort of began thinking about, well, who do we have in our organization who could, who, you know, might be interested and curious enough to tackle 40,000 years of communications history. (laughs) And so I got the assignment. (laughs) I'm as surprised as you are, (laughs) but I loved, I loved history. I loved culture. I loved anthrop- cultural anthropology. And I thought, what a plum assignment. And they already had a, they already had a framework for, uh, and I, 
supposing that Ray, that Ray Bradbury gave us this outline where we start with the cavemen shouting to each other, and then we enter the cave, and they've recorded elements of the hunt on the walls of the cave, and the shaman is is recounting the story to the people gathered around the campfire. So we've got we've got oral traditions, and then we've got pictures that remind us of the stories we've heard. And then a great transition to the Egyptian scene where we have a system of hieroglyphics, pictures carved on the walls of temples. So we're still putting images on the wall, but then when we, but you'd have to go to that temple to read what's on the wall until you develop a cursive writing Heratic writing that goes on papyrus that can be sent great distances. So my inspiration for approaching this was when I was uh, in college, I had, well, I have a little brother. He's 13 years younger than I am. So when I was in college, he was in kindergarten and he had a passion for trains and he, and my mom was an elementary school teacher. So she's all about, and we got books as Christmas presents and birthday presents that books were in. So he, she would take him to the children's library and they would come home with about 20 books and he would spread them all out on the living room floor and study them. He would just be on his tummy studying these books. And then later in the week, she would drive him down to the railroad crossing to watch the trains travel by. And he knew the names of all those cars. He could name them for you. (laughs) There's the engine. There's the... the... And so I thought that's a brilliant research approach, not just to choose one authority and go with that, but to just dive in and read as much and as broadly as we can about these various periods of time. And through that, kind of get a feel for now what what happens when you do that is you find out these experts don't agree. <laughs> of course. <laughs> a lot. Of course. <laughs> so there's it's challenging because you now you have to hold opposing views in your head and try to figure out how you sit through that. But we were really looking for very strong visuals, but then we also wanted to anchor these scenes in authentic time and place. So the challenge with Egypt, for example, was we want we want it to be late enough that heretic writing, writing on those papyrus scrolls is something that's being done. And you look at all the dynasties of, you know, all the different pharaohs, but you have to exclude some of them because they came too early. So we're choosing one from a particular point in time. And then, you know, and then I found an expert who who provided us with all the hieroglyphics on the walls and they really say something. And oh, he so taught neat. me how to read them like they're like cartouche. So he would send me these and he lived in Glendale, so Leonard Degrassi and he would deliver these um, long pages of hand-drawn hieroglyphics taped together, and then the translations of what these various figures, who they were, 
and what they were saying and what it meant and what text it might have, or what hieroglyph, what wall it might have been from. And then he also found a letter that a, that a pharaoh had actually written to his vizier and saying, okay, you are my representative in the field and you must conduct yourself in this way. And then we recruited him to do the Egyptian, when the pharaoh says, in Sudan Seshnitsu Chati, Iman Hotep, Ankwaji Senev, Imirahi Penejatja, and Titima. That's Leonard de Grassi reading the letter that he found for us that a pharaoh had actually written to his vizier. So we I'm very I, impressed. I loved this. We found um you know, and uh, we have a wonderful research library, the IRC. And so I could go to them to say, and now I need an expert in Phoenician. And they found me, Dr. Kremakoff, who was so thrilled to be providing Walt Disney with people with, um, with what the Phoenician trader and ship's captain would have been saying to each other. And he recorded it on a little, on a little disc and on a little you know tape and a cassette and sent it to me and then we found people we played it for them and we found people who have that um same sort of semitic language so they have a a certain tone to the so we had them record it for us um we brought oh then john hench you know pat scanlon i might have told you the story but but they were doing a, a show review at, at the Tahunga facility in North Hollywood where they would build the show sets and then and they would light them and these would be perfect. And then um, and then there'd be a buy-off. John Hench and Marty and would be there and they would buy these things off. Or not. They might say, mm, it's not quite ready, you know. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Are we really happy with the lighting here or the and so Pat came back from one of those reviews and he said, John says we need something from the 12 tables of Roman law, <laughs> which I'd never heard of. And I, but I talked to the library and they contacted UCLA's law library. And the next, within a couple of days, I had this little book and I went through it. It was all in Latin. Um, and I found a section a paragraph that would nicely fill the wall as you head up into the Roman scene. So you're leaving the Greek theater and you pass by this big wall and it has a Latin inscription on it. And then I thought, "Mm, I better be sure I know what it says. And it said, if you are some, if you are summoned to appear in court, you must appear. If you cannot afford transportation, it will be provided for you, but the cart need not be covered with pillows. It was like <laughs> a travel policy. <laughs> that's, that's nice. <laughs> so, you know, it was just, I, I created an 18-page bibliography, which delighted Marty. Oh, I, um, I had... I, you know, I kept notes on everything. And then for the next 20 years, every guest letter that came to Florida that was forwarded to us in Glendale that had a question about 
spaceship Earth? Why did we include this and not that? All of that um, was answered by me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marty. <laughs> like, you know, we 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 live with the product. And yeah. uh, that's always been something that I admired about the our organization is that you know, you design it and you do not walk away. You live with it. And, you know, the first narration for Spaceship Earth that Pat Scanlon and Exitensio wrote um, was so poetic. It was, who are we? Where have we come from? The answers begin in our past, in the dust from which we were formed, answers recorded on the walls of time. and beautiful but we started getting letters from guests and it was clear that they didn't that they weren't listening to the narration or it wasn't it wasn't providing them with information about why this scene exists so really the story was this is the story of how through time we humans have figured out how to share information first verbally and through gestures and then by recording experiences we've had on cave walls and temple walls and then we make that information portable and then you know we write on papyrus scrolls or we write cuneiform in little mud tablets, or we, you know, there are, the, these individual scenes are really sort of emblematic of a particular development, but to create kind of a cohesive story, we took a thread that took us from Egypt to Phoenicia, to Greece, to Rome. We have the Middle Ages, and the renaissance and all of that stuff is happening in europe but there were there was a wonderful book by a woman named jaquetta hawks and she wrote a book called the atlas of early man and it traced it you could open the book to any period of time and she would show you what was going on in in places around the world at the same point in time so That's you get a sense of you know, the Indus Valley, they're they're drawing symbols on these little cylinders in the Indus Valley. They are um, they are doing, you know, the Chinese are doing block printing, the Mayans are doing glyphs, the so you know, we were hearing from people, we were also hearing like, well, why didn't you include this great piece of literature? And what about the Bible? And what and so we were thinking, you know. This isn't about what we were writing so much as the technological advancements we made to go from, you know, develop from hieroglyphics that have so many symbols you have to study to be a scribe to figure out how to how to write heretic writing. Right. But with the development of the alphabet, it's available to merchants, to people doing everyday things. And then theater, what, you know, we use theater. And then the Roman roads, it's about a network of roads that enable 
information to travel great distances. Um, and then, you know, pretty soon we have Gutenberg's Bible and the printing press and and then television and well, radio and television. And and the next thing you know, we're looking back from space to this little blue marble that's floating in the vastness of space. And so that was the story. So we're thinking nobody's getting that. <laughs> so, yeah. So Tom Fitzgerald wrote a narration for Walter Cronkite. And and that was introduced, you know, fairly early in Epcot days to um, to be more direct about and this is this is what this scene is about. And then we did this. So you know, Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that was, uh, it was, at the original only lasted four years, which was a really quick turnaround. So it must have been uh, perceived as a real issue for it to change that quickly, I would guess. I think it was that people just weren't getting it. And there was some concern that it was not inclusive enough. Um, and so I am very happy to report that I found that there were school, there was a school of translation in Toledo, Spain. And it, you know, it, this tradition of of translating knowledge from the ancient world, from ancient Greece, from Egypt, from Mesopotamia, you know, to across the whole, um, uh, the whole Mediterranean world. And during the time when the Arab empire included Spain, they were they were gathering up that information, translating it into um, into Arabic and then into Latin. And so all of that was really saved because um, it was available, well, it was saved for Western Europe because then it was available for Western European scholars to translate the Latin into other, you know, into their body of knowledge. Right. So so we were able to kind of um massage that that scene that that precedes the monks in the doing the illuminated manuscripts mm -hmm. to this story of, of the translation schools. And that was pretty cool. And it was, you know, also after the Arabs, the Jewish scholars were there doing lots of that. So we were able to include that part which was very cool. That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, I, you know, I love, it's amazing the level of detail that went into these attractions. Uh, I had read that you, even, even the Cro-Magnon speak, the caveman talk, even that was researched. <laughs> well, no, in that case, Vic Perrin made it up. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. We have no idea. I mean, it, happened 20,000 at least 20,000 years ago right so so no record no record of that obviously I just I yeah. so I thought yeah. you'd somehow yeah. like <laughs> recreated proto-indo-european or something like that but uh so that's Vic Perrin no, no. Vic Perrin total total brilliance of Vic Perrin oh that's and fantastic he made it up that he delivered it and had a great, uh, great uh, narration. That that uh, was it. Was a very dramatic that first narration. Very, very moody. It was. It was. It was very moody, and yeah. But the other, you know, 
uh, Jeremy Irons and Dame Judy Detch, they're pretty remarkable yeah. voices too. So they're they're, they're good at what they do. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Perhaps fittingly, considering the opening scenes of the attraction, the origins of Spaceship Earth are murky and mysterious and hidden in the depths of time. To track the development of Spaceship Earth is to track the evolution of Epcot as a whole. In fact, evolution is a good word for how the attraction came about. When you look at various schematics and models of the park from 1975 to 1979, you can slowly see what was known as the theme show, quote-unquote, for Future World, evolve from a smaller theatrical show to a domed attraction to the complete geosphere that we know today. The road to Spaceship Earth began in 1975 when Epcot planning resumed again in earnest, and concrete ideas for a physical Epcot facility began to form. While Disney had already announced a new attraction called the World Showcase, which was to be built near the Magic Kingdom, 1975 saw the arrival of a new concept to house and put forward Walt's more technologically-oriented goals for Epcot. This new facility was to be called the Epcot Future World Theme Center and would be, quote, a high-capacity window through which the general public can observe and, in some instances, participate in Epcot activities. Sounds fun. I'm, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> love those Epcot activities. <laughs> yeah, gotta love those Epcot, Epcot minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. America, America. In this concept, various Epcot activities would be distributed amongst a number of facilities within and without Walt Disney World to be dubbed the Epcot Satellites. These could be anything from a cutting-edge solar installation to agricultural projects to even the advanced garbage handling system at the Magic Kingdom. Some of these experimental satellite facilities would be open to the public and others would not, but guests would be able to observe all their functions remotely by visiting the Future World Theme Center. In this way, Disney could operate a number of prototype systems throughout Walt Disney World and easily convey that information to the public through a single facility, with the hopes that guests would take this knowledge home and push for similar innovations in their own communities. This is kind of the beginning of the uh, Danny Kay Epcot is the center of Epcot, which is Walt Disney World, which is Epcot, and the center of which is Epcot. I mean, although if they would have had the satellites, I I have said several times on this podcast, that would be my ideal, I think, my, my chosen version of Epcot. Yeah, I think this was a good model. This was it a, is. It would have been really cool to see what 
fruit that bore uh, over exactly. the years. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities. A lot of those system, a lot of those facilities and things were really interesting that they had running at the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it would have put pressure on them to keep doing that. Yes. Would have been great. Totally. Totally. Making sense of these early plans from the scant amount of information available is a bit tricky, especially because throughout the process, nomenclature changed and similar phrases were often used to describe different elements of the facility. For instance, the theme center, i.e. the entire facility, was host to a theme show, i.e. the small attraction which would evolve into Spaceship Earth. And the definition of what would constitute Communicore changed constantly. Uh, Communicore wound up being a bunch of different things and was sometimes called the Future World Mall. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. From what we can gather, the early layout went something like this. You would arrive at the Future World Theme Center via the Transportation Hub, which yes. was a large facility allowing connections to monorails, people movers, motor coaches, and more. They even had water connections. This was going to be like every type of transportation. Kind of squares showing up on the motor coach. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you could do so much better. It's the hub. Right. You got to show That's up in right. style. From here, you would enter the Communicore, which was an elongated multi-level structure running from the entrance to the center of the park. Communicore was, in essence, the main street of the park, uh, intentionally designed to be so containing a number of shops, services, and exhibits. So basically, your futuristic version of the Emporium, your futuristic version of a lot of the features of Main Street and uh, guest services and things like that. Right. Housed in Communicore were a pair of Circle Vision Theaters, dubbed the Epcot Overview Circle Vision Theaters. These were initially meant to provide up-to-the-minute daily updates on what was happening in the various Epcot satellites. It is where, said Disney, guests would learn of Walt Disney's goals for Epcot and how this unique community functions and where they would receive an overview of what is happening in the Epcot satellites on the day of their visit. Hmm. Um, that's lofty, but uh, sure. Yeah, you absolutely. Can't have circle vision. My brain goes immediately to the like operational necessity of like updating content daily of right. <laughs> of these movies. What would there be to say every day? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We got some nice begonias coming in at the greenhouse. So looking zucchinis looking good. <laughs> right, right. At the uh, opposite end from the park's entrance, Communicore would connect with a facility variously known as the Information Plaza or information concourse. Uh, confusingly, the layout of this area is actually similar to what in 1982 would uh, open as Communicore in the actual Epcot Park. So not confusing at all, all these terminologies. The name was just too damn good. <laughs> you can't let it go. Just can't let it go. So branching out from the information concourse would be three large pavilions, community, science and technology, and communications and the arts. Now, these three large areas of studies would have smaller attractions within dedicated to specific fields. For instance, inside the Science and Technology Pavilion, you'd find attractions dedicated to space, agriculture, and other subjects. At some later point, the topic of communications would be eliminated from the Communications and the Arts Pavilion, 
and would be given its own space in Communicore, adjacent to the Overview Theaters and theme show near the front of the park. And so the seed of Spaceship Earth was planted. But what was this theme show supposed to be? A list of early ideas for show possibilities included the story of Epcot, which was to be, quote, a multi-screen projection format to communicate Walt Disney's philosophy, i.e. Epcot, its beginning, and its future potential. This is actually the path which Imagineers first set down in trying to define the show. But another intriguing option on the list hinted at what the show would actually become in later years. The Epcot time capsule was proposed to be, quote, an Omnimover dark ride format that would take the guests on a participatory trip into the future where they would confront and experience the far reaches of scientific imaginations. So it's strange that this is not the path they chose to develop at first, but it was where they wound up at the end. Yeah, it's also just kind of amazing that they went through so many versions of this. You think about the time. I'm sure at the time it felt like a lot of people were like, what are they doing with Epcot forever? You know, I know Floridians were. Yes. But, I mean, they were working hard (laughs) on a lot of different things yeah and constantly and elaborate artwork and these models you see these staged photos of them working with these models and like every year in the annual report it would have like an update and you know really really elaborate stuff and yeah uh, the amount of revisions as you say they went through was just wild I mean, I'd be interested to see almost any of these ideas in real life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd just be something. Because we only get like little glimpses of what each one was going right. to be. It's like, I right. would really want to know what they were thinking with each one. Mm-hmm. Uh, by mid-1975, the idea had evolved to where Communicore would consist of the Circle Vision Theaters, a theme show, and a small communications pavilion. The theme show was assigned to John DeCure Jr. and Doug Kane, while the communications area was assigned to Ex Atencio. This communications area featured a lot of ideas that would later work their way into the actual Communicore in 1982. And uh, in late 1975, Disney was trying to get IBM to sponsor the pavilion. Get those big IBM bucks coming in. Oh, yeah. The, the big boys. That's right. Seems that the first evolution of the theme show was for something alternately known as the Epcot Story. Future City or World City. They use these names, just they just throw these names all around, and you can never really tell what they're talking about. This attraction would sit at the end of Communicore where it met the information concourse in the center of the park. It was meant to be the synthesis of Epcot thinking, and according to the 1975 Disney Annual Report, would combine advanced entertainment techniques, miniaturization, video projection, animation and computer-driven simulations and displays to trace the evolution of the major cities of the world and to portray a model community of the future in the process of growth and adaptation. So wrap your mind around that one. What does it mean? Miniaturization. Yeah. Yeah, what does it mean indeed? By early 1976, this Epcot story was said to be the key to any attempt to explain the theme center communicore and a necessary complement to the information concourse as the castle is to Main Street. Hmm. So this was the, the weenie, I suppose. Yeah. Around this time, the 
idea of having Epcot satellite facilities started to wane. And so the need for the twin Circle Vision Theater started to fade. And it was proposed to incorporate their functions into the Future World Theater, which is where the Epcot story would be presented. It was proposed that a preview theater also be constructed within the hub of the park to introduce the lands and preview future exhibits and shows. While this never happened, just a tiny vestigial trace of the idea could be found in the old Earth Station post-show area for Spaceship Earth, where they had that animated film that looped on overhead screens showing previews of the park's attractions. A great little film. Yeah, it was. Uh, You wonder if that would have been of good use to them to have a preview theater, since people had a seemingly hard... (laughs) Some people had a seemingly hard time understanding what an what an Epcot was. Yes, exactly. Maybe they but needed that they after put all. A pre- preview theater in there, and maybe that would have done the trick. I don't know. It was. I, I don't know. Yeah, I it's interesting that, sure. that all these all these initial propositions of theirs had some sort of a what is Epcot intro right. show, right? And uh, maybe that would have been an interesting thing to start off with. Or put it somewhere in Communicore or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, 1976 was the fabled year when the models were pushed together and the future world and world showcase projects were combined. A list of potential attractions from October of 1976 lists a Spaceship Earth theme show alongside three other future world pavilions, Energy, Communications, and Health. So starting off with a sparse lineup at, at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, and not uh, broad-ranging, really. <laughs> it's a lot left out. No. Well, I think we see why they uh, sought to push the models together, because neither of these projects was picking a lot of sponsorship traction. Right. So, right. I mean, if you're talking three pavilions in Future World, I can't remember how many were in World Showcase, maybe six. So, uh, yeah, it's, it slim pickings. So mm-hmm. just put them together. By the time of the 1976 annual report, it was said that people would enter the combined park through World Showcase and proceed from there into Future World, although the models seemed to indicate two entrances, one for Future World and one for World Showcase. By this point, Future World was said to have discrete pavilions based on fields of study like energy, health, oceanography, space, agriculture, communications, and transportation. So, a little closer to reality. Uh, While it is premature to detail all the presentations in this future world area, said Disney, we are well along in the development of a major theme show about man and his spaceship Earth and man's great potential for the future. Having passed through this dramatic introduction, a moving experience combining a -a one-of-a-kind theater with film and automated techniques, guests would go out into the future world. So... We've got our Spaceship Earth name in there somewhere, but we still kind of vague about what the show actually is. I wonder if the Spaceship Earth name is uh, early Bradbury. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, 1976, they were already dealing with him. You got to call it Spaceship Earth. It's the way you got to call it that. So-and-so once said <laughs> that... Earth is a spaceship, and I think that's a good name. <laughs> now, pass, <laughs> pass the yeah. hooch. Um, yeah, I, 
I, I would bet probably so, because the emergence of the name kind of syncs up to his arrival on the project. Right, so right. I think you're probably right. In early 1977, Communicore was described as the spine of the future world development, said Disney, as a series of high-capacity facilities arranged in corridor fashion, the Communicore is designed to entertainingly demonstrate new systems of information gathering, processing, and disseminating. The primary introductory attraction of Future World, Man and His Spaceship Earth, marks the beginning of the information corridor and the beginning of the series of areas through which all visitors to Future World will arrive, depart, and centrally circulate. So they were planning on sending everybody through this facility. Everybody would see all these exhibits and everybody would see this introductory show. Now in corridor fashion. In corridor fashion. And uh, yeah, it, it really was seen as an introduction to the whole park, not just a communications pavilion, but it was, it was the intro. It was, the theme show, as we said, for the entire park. It's kind of interesting they would end up building two kind of thesis attractions. Yes, and, exactly. I was yeah. thinking the same thing. I was like, this was originally more of like Horizon's vibe of what right. they were getting across. Right. The theme show was still to be accompanied by a communications pavilion said to include, unsurprisingly, communications-related shows, exhibits, and attractions. And it would still connect with the information concourse, said to be the hub and central radiating crossroads of Future World. Both areas contain proposed exhibits, which would later evolve into actual Communicore offerings. Things like the Epcot Pole had their start here. Uh, a, a few different things that would be in Communicore started off here. But Man and His Spaceship Earth was to be the real star of the show, and it definitely sounds intriguing. It was meant to be, said Disney, a combination of multi-theatrical presentation and ride, as well as the major attraction and introduction to Future World. It would take its cue both from a capsulized view of mankind throughout history up to the present and into the future, and from the survival tools man has developed and must continue to utilize if he is to exist as a species on planet Earth. So it sounds like we're getting closer. Yeah. The multi-theater thing makes me think of, you know, Universe of Energy when you start yeah, talking about mul true. multiple theaters. And in fact, a lot of the early renderings for this had like dinosaur scenes too. So I'm not sure what that was about, what they were thinking with that. <laughs> Got to get those dinos in there somewhere. Got to get them somewhere. So maybe that was before they split off and headed over to Energy. They were here. Frank Stanick mad that the train is not more interesting at the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta put them in there. Put them in there. It's right there. For a ride system, it was said to utilize track-mounted theater sections. Now, I don't know what that means, but as I said, sounds more like a Universe of Energy-style moving theater. Yeah. I assume these vehicles would have been much smaller, as I've never seen art with those massive theater cars moving through it, but who knows. Here's a more detailed description of the show, again from early 1977, that shows just how much the show had evolved into something resembling the final thing. Guests will begin their experience in the upper-level pre-show area after being seated in theater section ride modules. Here they witness the coalescence of spinning images and voices into one 
universal man who offers to help us understand ourselves by first traveling back to man's earliest beginnings. The narration invites the guests to witness the evolution of the earth and its inhabitants, at which point the theater section suddenly began a descent past architectural and sculptural sets depicting stages in the history of civilization, and further back yet, till ultimately the guests witnessed the beginning of time. The theater sections then began to move slowly forward through visual and animated sequences of man's prehistory and his eventual development of various methods for communication. The journey continues by stages through history and relentlessly presses forward to the present until the guests find themselves ready to blast off from a simulated launching pad to view ourselves and Earth from distant space. The final act of the show presents guests with a challenge to return to Spaceship Earth and seek new means of understanding and communicating, as their surrounding now reveals that they are in a re-entry space vehicle headed for Earth. They are turned to look to the future, to a world awaiting to be shaped and changed. At this point, the show is ended, and voices near the exit doors beckon the guests to discover the many exciting future world attractions of Epcot Center. That sounds terrifying. Voices. I'm hearing voices beckoning me to exit. Come, come, come joy. Come see future world. Um, the the uh, spinning images turning into the universal man amused me. I oh, yeah, am the universal man. Right. <laughs> Join me as we turn. Yeah, this is the whole Bradbury thing about us. Uh, spinning back and back and back through time. And you can see that in the model. There are lots of pictures of the model they had at D23 that one time where it's like starting off in sort of modern day New York style buildings and then going back through ruins. And uh, Bradbury loved that metaphor of the different layers of uh, the city of Troy, of Schliemann digging through the, uh -huh. the uh -huh. ruins of Troy and finding all the different cities on top of each other. So. This is that metaphor at work and going back to the beginning of time and then coming back. So, uh, yeah, it, it does sound a little spooky. It's yeah. A little haunting haunted. Yeah. yeah. It's at this point too. the functions envisioned for the communications pavilion, get rolled over into the information concourse, AKA what would evolve into Communicore. This is how we wound up eventually getting the future com exhibit sponsored by the bell systems, the future choice theater and more. It's always so bizarre to me how they ended up moving them all to Communicore. Yeah. Like the energy exchange. I mean, I guess it ended up making, they made it make sense, but it's just uh, yeah, bizarre that there wasn't just post-show of all the pavilions, you know? Right, right. Well, that's like uh, Peggy Ferris said when we talked to her that, you know, basically Communicore was the one for them. It's like the right, rides right. were one for us and the the Communicore is one for them where you yeah, can yeah. you can get across whatever message you want in there, uh, your corporate message, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. could be easily changed. Yeah, that makes sense. Surprisingly, but also useful for our purposes, more was known at this point about this area of the park than the other theme pavilions. Those were still highly nebulous and in very early stages of conceptual development. 
Despite its rocky development, the theme show really had been an early focus of attention through several iterations of the actual park itself. So in a lot of these early promotional things are like, we don't really know what the other things are going to be, but this theme show is going to be great. <laughs> it's going to knock your socks off. Yeah. On July 22nd, 1977, writer Ray Bradbury delivered his concept for the man and his spaceship earth attraction. This was a lengthy proposal that really supplied the basis for the final attraction. In fact, many of the lines Bradbury wrote were repurposed for the attraction's final narration. Bradbury's treatment is more sprawling than the final show, of course, and you can hear more about that and his Epcot contributions in episode 43 of our show, Brushes with Genius. Uh, this was the Schweitzer Centrifuge. Yes, yes. Spin you around on the ceiling and mm -hmm. stare into the void or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Far out, man. By the time of the 1977 annual report rolled out, Epcot was starting to be recognizable. Spaceship Earth now featured a large golden dome, although the majority of the attraction was still to be housed in an adjacent show building. Spaceship Earth is the major theme show and introduction to the concept and meaning of Epcot, said Disney, focusing on the relationship between communications and humankind's continuing dynamic survival. It is an optimistic statement recognizing our enormous challenges and concluding strongly that creative men and women of the world can develop a viable instruction book for Spaceship Earth. Central to the meaning of the show is the fact that access to accurate and relevant information and the continuing ability to create new and better tools for survival have been the real dynamic of our voyage aboard Spaceship Earth. The Disney staff is creating an exciting and unique theatrical experience for the dramatic spherical structure which will dominate the entrance to Epcot Center. A time machine journey into the past to trace man's progress as he acquires and utilizes new knowledge. Surging forward through time, guests will see historical milestones unfold as man records, communicates more broadly, and finally uses computer technology to process ever-increasing amounts of information. So we can really see how the theme of the attraction had at this point shifted from a general message about human progress to one centered specifically on communications. Uh, this was done most likely in order to snare a sponsor. For a long time, as I mentioned, IBM had been a target, but over the next few years, negotiations would lead to AT&T's Bell system taking over the sponsorship. With AT&T came the need in late 1978 to create a mini communications pavilion to serve as the spill area of Spaceship Earth and a segue to lead into Communicor. This became Earth Station, the initial post-show area of the attraction, which also served as the park's first guest relations facility. Love that place. Yeah, so good. Such a great vibe in there. Yes. Good place yes. to hang out. Spaceship Earth was on its way. From 1977 to 1979, it would transform from a golden dome to a golden geosphere to the silvery sphere we know today. By the time it opened in 1982, it would sport a sonorous narration by actor Vic Perrin, based roughly on Bradbury's original script, with an added focus on human communication. The attraction has seen many changes over the years, but even today the show, which was one of the first in development for Epcot, remains one of only a couple of attractions still true to the park's original mission. It's amazing, you know, when this uh, idea started back more than three years ago for this particular show, 
in theory, it really hasn't changed a lot. It's the same story of man's ability to survive by communicating and man's ability to improve the quality of life by communicating. And to see the show, even for myself now, in the different stages, and then finally finish and go through it with outside people, it was a great thrill for me. And how did other people react to Epcot? Oh, this everything here is just great. And everything in here, it's really fascinating. Well, I think Spaceship Earth uh, has been the most exciting attraction I've been in today. Uh, it, it was fantastic. <laughs> and I like the bell system. They're, they're very good. It's very futuristic and very in, uh, educational, I guess, is the word, isn't it? Tanya, what do you like best about Epcot Center? I like it all. <laughs> Junior can own a newfangled smart telephone. It's amazing all the things it can do as it brings the world closer to you. You can sit right there in your easy chair and check the stock report on a screen at home. Make plans to run to your favorite ski resort. It'll bring the world closer to you. There's a wonderful change coming, a beautiful day dawning, a miracle we're seeing come true. Cause the age of information is sweeping across the nation and bringing the world closer to Okay, well, that wraps up our first foray into the theme center communications, Michael. Um, you know, a fountain of information, if you will. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is the age of information, after all, and we're just living in it. And, uh, yeah, this is just the start of, start of big things, Epcot. It's true. It's true. And... Yeah, like we said, we're going to kind of go through some of these themes and a lot of exciting things to come. But it is the time of the show where we like to check in and see about our Patreon. Michael, has anyone signed up for our Patreon of late? Yes, they have. We like to welcome several people this month, which I'm really excited to say. Welcome Katie Beth, Jeff, Neil, and John, all of them, to the Patreon. Uh, very excited. They'll all be joining for special early access to episodes, get a little packet of swag. In fact, I sent out a bunch of those packets just last week, winging their way to people across the country. And, of course, at the silver level, you will be joining us for a monthly live stream with all sorts of rare photos and videos and just us hanging out with a Lovely bunch of people in the chat room. Jeff, last month we had a very special guest. It's true. The great Tom Morris joined us to reflect on Epcot's 40th. And it was a real pleasure. You know, nobody... I, I just love Tom because he was such a fan. And that... Yes. Uh, you don't see it as much for some reason. And I just really appreciate it. He was such an unabashed fan going around taking all these pictures of Epcot while it was under construction. What a great thing that he was there. Absolutely. Thank heavens for that because he has got 
an amazing historical record so and is willing to share it even better so you never know who's going to show up on our monthly live stream so sign up for the patreon it is all of course tax deductible so it's true and you know i mean what a great way to get a question into tom you know put it in the chat we got questions to tom so the next time we have somebody we'll put it out on twitter and you know you can be right there in the in the progress city living room with them i know enough of our questions you can ask your own questions that was fun seeing what everybody had to ask yeah and as always our chat is so much fun because everybody is the regular crowd shuffles in and it's a good time that's right well if you want to ask us a question not on the live stream i mean well before we do that uh, how would one get to our patreon michael Oh, that's probably an important thing. It's patreon.com slash progress city USA. Yeah. So please uh, thank Well, thank you to all of you who have signed up. Please consider, you know, signing up, trying it out, see if you like it. And if you would like to get in touch with us, not on the Patreon, that's fine too. We can be reached at email at podcast at progresscityusa.com. And we're on Twitter. Michael's at progress city USA. And I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And Michael, what is coming up next for us here on our journey? Well, I'm excited. I'm really excited for this next episode because, you know, we're getting into, it's the fall. It's the fall season. And it's about the time where the pumpkins start coming out of the pumpkin patch. And it's harvest time is what I'm trying to say. And so well, what better place to think about harvest than at the land pavilion? But what better way to start that than by talking to somebody who worked on the land? And even better than that, what's better than talking to a bona fide certified Disney legend? Hey. Who and, worked on the land. And not like one of these, you know fly-by-night Michael Eisner Disney Legends. This is a real no. deal Disney legend. Not not, not Xtina. Right. We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a real deal Disney legend. We're talking about the great Doris Hardoon, who worked at Walt Disney Imagineering for decades, was recently named a Disney legend, also a Buzz Price Thea Lifetime Achievement mm. Award winner. She's decorated by everyone and she is the best i will say this because it's something that's already known by her known about her out there but she did the wall carpet for the harvest theater that's that right was that's right so we've got a massive sprawling two-part interview coming up with doris hardoon and that's what's coming up next that's exciting it's a little bit out of the ordinary for us to jump ahead to an interview but uh, we thought we'd get to the harvest. It's harvest time. We got to jump there while we're while while it's getting good. So we'll we'll get to our themed episode on that topic after this these interviews. But I'm excited to hear them. Michael sat down with Doris, so it should be a great time. And won't you join us for them coming up in a couple of weeks? And so we will continue on. I don't know if you knew this, but the future world was born today. So let's take a little flying spaceship down to Earth Station, make a dining reservation, and wish you all the best. Uh, until next time, 
when we will join you with Doris Hardoon talking about the land and other things. Until then, take care. We'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. They call it Progress, Progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time at Progress, Progress. Meet in Progress City, USA. You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. Created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.